This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. You've heard of Facebook, right? Huge site, over 2 billion people visiting it every day. But what's it like actually working there? I talked with product designer Earl Carlson to find out. So I'm on the news team, which uh, means that everything that we're working on is very sort of up in the air as news is in general. Um, and that's a really fascinating space to be in when you're thinking about news specifically. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, Buffer has two remote positions available for a product engineer and an engineering manager. Vox Media is looking for a visuals editor for Curbed at their New York City office. Cast Inc. is looking for an interaction and UI designer in Wakefield, Massachusetts. And here at Revision Path, we're looking for a design writer to join our team. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. So whether you're into design, coding, music, or art, Glitch is the right tool for you. Start from scratch or remix any of the available projects and make them your own. And if you get stuck, just raise your hand and get help from the Glitch community. Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. Did you know that the number one email marketing priority is personalization? I mean, it makes sense if you think about it. You want to only hear from people and businesses that you like. And MailChimp helps make that happen with their robust campaign builder and a host of helpful automations. It's email marketing with a personal touch. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account. MailChimp. Send better email. We've got a new review here from Apple Podcasts. This comes from Adrian Cook. Adrian is also one of our super loyal patrons on Patreon. And his review is called Revision Path Keeps Getting Better, which I think it is. <laughs> uh, here's his review. The episode about the design of Black Panther is a new favorite for me. I continue to learn so much from the conversations on Revision Path, and it inspires me to expand my design horizons. Thank you so much for that wonderful review, Adrian, man. Y'all really, really loved that Black Panther episode. That is, that is really dope to hear. Now let's go ahead and get on to this week's interview. I'm talking to software designer Anthony Daniel II here in Atlanta, Georgia. 
Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Anthony Daniel. I am a senior interaction designer for Honeywell Aerospace, and I design enterprise software for pilots. Software for pilots. I want you to please unpack that a little bit. I'm curious to know (laughs) what that looks like. Because when I think about pilots, I think everything is fairly analog. Yeah. So you're right. Uh, A lot of things happen. Like there's two processes. There's the software that's designed inside of the cockpit. And then there's also the pre-flight software that's designed to help the pilots prepare for their next journey. I'm on that side. So at Honeywell, we have an engine, which is a website and a series of apps that allow us or allow the um, pilots, dispatchers, and and anyone that we're working with from an aviation perspective to see how to get to a specific airport from another place, how to get to see if like there is nearby airports, if they're flying overseas, because that's important. And also to check the weather, to check wind forecasts is really complex stuff. And, and essentially these people are looking at a lot of information all at once. And my job is to not get rid of any of that information, but to present information as people need it. That's a lot of information to process. I would think, you know, as a pilot, you're getting weather information, you're getting information from the air traffic controllers and even information about like how the plane is actually functioning. Mm-hmm. Yep. That is definitely true. It's a lot to, to take in. I remember I've been at Honeywell for almost seven months now. And during that time I've absorbed almost like a year and a half worth of information and had to process it in like pretty much in real time. You know, like when you start a job, sometimes you're drinking from the fire hose. I think that this time I was drinking from like a power washer. Wow. And it, it was serious. <laughs> there are moments when like we'll do workshops and my brain just feels like it's just been stretched because there's so many different terms. There's so many different uh like abbreviations, conditions, when you think something is straightforward, it is never straightforward. There's always another undergoing layer, like under another one. Can you give an example of that? Yeah. So going back to what I was saying about around like conditions, like for flying overseas, the rule is in order to fly overseas, you have to Make sure that there is a nearby airport just in case anything happens, like any mishaps happen in the air where you're forced to do emergency landing. If you don't have those airports aligned, then that puts you at a greater risk. And of course, like in some cases, well, you may not even be able to take a route unless the FAA approves it. And so the system that I'm designing with a a larger team is around all of those various processes. So you select your aircraft and then you select the air speed and then those can vary. Those can have other conditions around those. It's very wired. <laughs> when you unravel something, another thing comes out. Yeah, I flew to London in December 
And aside from just like the sheer, you know, size of the plane, because I've mostly just flown domestic, but I'm thinking of everything that has to go into being able to sustain the plane over an ocean for (laughs) six hours or more. And it's regulating temperature and lighting and entertainment. And I mean, it just it seems like, you know, it would be a lot of information to try to get all at once. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to go into that? Well, luckily, I don't have to really go into that part of it. But when I first heard about the opportunity to do it for aerospace, A, I was like, hey, man, this is a, a really crazy opportunity uh, other than doing interaction design for NASA because the challenges that you're presented force you to think outside of the box in every way. It's no longer about being creative for the sake of being creative, which in some sense, if you're another designer that works at an agency or a consulting firm, sometimes you have that flexibility of doing something like really cool. Well, this is not really the case. Really cool in this case is dealing with the creative approaches that you come up with for A, using progressive disclosure to hide or to incrementally hide information that may not be relevant. And then at the same time, how do you then provide affordance for other aspects of the site that may be needed for another user type. Because sometimes the constraint is we may not be able to do super advanced preferences based on user roles. When we don't have that availability, sometimes we may have to hide the controls and make them accessible to everyone just in a different way. For some reason, as you described that, my mind went towards responsive design I feel yeah. like in, I feel like in responsive design, one of the things that we have to also take into consideration is that kind of progressive disclosure. Because as the viewport width gets smaller, we have to decide, you know, what's the hierarchy of importance of information mm-hmm. that we're providing. That I mean, my mind went to that, but then my mind also went honestly to video games. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, you mentioned aerospace and NASA. I used to intern with NASA like many, many moons ago to keep what? the space motif. But I'm thinking of video games and how you look at the heads-up displays and and I'm always wonder like how accurate is that to the real world in terms of like finding the right information and clicking through menus and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It is it's relevant. And one of our applications that I've designed uh with another few another set of people is around uh it's called flight preview. Mm-hmm. And Now, with that, you can see the flight level. You can simulate the flight level that you could experience when flying. See, like flight preview is essentially it's a iPad app that you put in your coordinates, put in your route, you put in all of these other conditions with the exception of weather. And then it creates a 3D simulation with checkpoints so you could see how the uh, like how this route or how you're going to fly to these different approaches it's really unique and so the heads up display in that i mean it's simulated in the sense where it's showing you your flight level as you're going to the various waypoints mm-hmm. and it's pretty cool the future of how things can be done from a virtual perspective is going to be amazing in the future, I guarantee. Did you always have this interest in flight? No, I've always been interested in space, honestly, but I didn't think I would ever be in like the uh, aerospace side of anything, uh, really. So this was uh, 
a new challenge. But now that I've been here, you kind of have to throw something super hard. It's really going to be hard to top any of the complexity of what I'm doing now because it just is. It's, it's all of this stuff is so interesting and it's constantly challenging. And I'm actually going to be going to ground school in April where it's going to be two weeks of aviation training, which is like the precursor to getting your pilot's license. I'm not going to pursue it. I don't think I'm going to pursue my pilot's license, but you learn all the ins and outs of it. Wow. That's dope. Man. Yeah. That's, that's, I had no idea that that kind of thing was here in Atlanta. No, Well, no this clue. one is in Arizona because Sky Harbor, of course, is like, that's our aerospace headquarters. And also, you know, that's a really big um, port. Like it's a big airport. And so a lot of the aviation processes happen there. Okay. I gotcha. So before you did all of this and got into it, cause you said you've been doing it now for about seven months. You just briefly mentioned NASA. Talk to me about your time there. Well, I wasn't there. I was always interested in that. Like, oh, I've been a, interested I, in it. Okay. Yeah, I've always been interested in space, man. Like it, it has been a really big obsession for a long time. <laughs> when did you first get interested in it? As a kid, I used to collect all of these uh, glow in the dark things that you could like put up, up on your wall. But one of the biggest things that I was super interested in, besides Jupiter, was that there's this also the super giant that is. Even like, I think it's like 500 times the size of the sun, which is kind of crazy to think about. But just the, the the magnitude of things in outer space is just always, I've been drawn to that. Mm-hmm. You're always interested in, in space, interested in NASA. Did you go to space camp? Did you have a chance to do that? No, man. Did you get a chance to do that? Okay. So I always wanted to go because I'm, I'm from Alabama. And so our space camp is in Huntsville. So I was always thinking like, oh, yeah, I really, really want to do it, really want to go. And then like I would watch these game shows like Double Dare and stuff like that where they're like, oh, you're going to go to space camp. I'm like, I want to go to space camp. Never got to go to space camp until I went to college here in Atlanta at Morehouse as part of a NASA scholarship. And we got to intern at a NASA facility, which was sort of like grown up space camp in a way because we got to actually (laughs) see – a shuttle. We got to see, well, the place I was at was Ames Research Center, which is in Moffett Field, California, like right outside of uh, of Mountain View. This is 99, 2000, like right before Google started. And so oh, they, wow. have, they have like this really big, huge wind tunnel that's made, the blades in the wind tunnel are made from Sequoia Redwoods. And what? so they use that to like simulate what the, I guess, the Air Force speeds and things are when they have their spacecraft and aircraft in there. So we got to see that sort of stuff, hands-on, work in the buildings. It was, I mean, it was it was work, but it was also sort of like space camp because you're actually working and doing the things that they're using in space. I still wanted to go to space camp, but I think interning at NASA was kind of the, the grown-up version of space camp. Yeah, and, man, and you luckily, already have a leg up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, luckily, the next summer, I did intern at Marshall Space Flight Center, which is in Normal, Alabama, which is near Huntsville. So I, that's the closest I've gotten to space camp, was working at, at Marshall. Geographically, that was the closest. When I was there, we were doing human-computer interactions. 
Oh, nice. So like working on haptic interfaces and 3D printer. This is before 3D printing is like the hobbyist thing it is now. Um, this is like oh, wow. 2001, 2002. Because they would show us how they make the nose cones for the space shuttle. And so they use this. It's like some substance called uh, Marcor or something like that. And they show us how it's like printed out in this hexagonal shape. And uh, I mean, I was a math major. So like they're showing us how when they create it, it's this paraboloid. And it was all like super interesting stuff and like haptic interfaces working with touchscreen devices. And I mean, this is all stuff that now is in the mainstream. But I remember seeing it like in college. It's like it's amazing how many kind of uh, interactions and I would say technology and stuff comes from NASA. Like a lot of that stuff comes from there and then it ends up getting like worked into kind of our regular normal lives. Yeah, man. And that's really insane that you had all those experiences. I mean, you're kind of like a a tech hipster at this point. (laughs) Tech hipster. (laughs) I'll take that. I'll take that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, so, but before the work you were doing at Honeywell, you were working in Kind of in, in the ad world, right? You did some stuff with yeah, Digitas. Yeah. You worked with Slalom. Talk about that for a little bit. What was that like? Working at the agency was okay. You know, I actually preferred the, uh, before I got to being more at a product company, being more in the consultancy side was cool. The agency side, I wasn't really feeling, honestly. Like the work I was doing was cool because the project I was on was for Infinity and Nissan. We were like redoing their entire site, moving it from, one platform to another. And that experience was good because that was the first time really I had a responsibility of kind of like rallying up a lot of people who were under me as well as like facilitating a bunch of discussions around constraints and around hearing a bunch of no's and trying to push where I could. But understanding where the challenges were and the slalom was cool too because i was working with brands like home depot and help design their pro extra loyalty program app that was primarily used by a lot of small businesses and contractors and still it's still running which is cool to see something that i actually contributed to which is a very humbling experience because yeah, that's, I mean, like they're really large and I mean, internationally known. So that was my time, man. You know, I'm very happy with being at a product company because that's honestly where my passion lies is building software products, not just building something cool. I want to be there from inception to the next release, you know, like mm-hmm. that is what actually excites me. You know, agency life always looks, at least to me it does, and I've heard this from other people as well, but it looks interesting on the outside because you're working with these big brands and you're like at parties and stuff and it looks fun, but yeah. you're saying it's not fun. It, it's for, it's, I'm, I'm saying it wasn't fun for me. I'm sure there are some people who really dig it, just like yeah. anything. I didn't like it, man. Cause like the thing is, like when I was younger, I swore I was going to be Don Draper. Like I was big into <laughs> like the concept of advertising. Uh, just my background also in copywriting and visual communication. All of that stuff was really appealing to me. But getting in into the environment that I was in, you know, you have to deal with all kinds of like 
egos and like you're really not that close to the work. You know, that's the sucky thing about it is that you're not really close to the work at all. As soon as you launch the stuff, you move on to another project. So in my mind, I'm like, well, how effective am I? You know, did I make something cool? Is this more so based on subjectivity or am I actually there to see the metrics? Like, and then how could I evolve that from there? You don't get that really working at agency. And so that's why I kind of, I'm happy again with uh, going the more product route. How do you see the design scene here in Atlanta? Has, Has your work mostly been here in the city or have you been elsewhere? I've done most of my work here in Atlanta. The Atlanta scene has evolved over time. It's so interesting because like, I mean, we're probably around not too far off in age, but I'm, I'm 31. And I remember like when I first got to Atlanta, I was uh, 21 going on 22. Mm-hmm. So that was like 08. And the internet was like way different. You remember that, man? Like that yeah. was still skeuomorphism. And that was uh, unique. Then I gradually saw in 2011 like responsive design coming out of the the works and then html5 and all that stuff so from a design perspective in atlanta there's a lot of brilliant designers man like they come from all over the place and everybody has their own unique style which i really like there's some really talented people here and you see them in the same circles which is unique too because like the design community in atlanta is big but it's small like if you're doing something you'll run into the same people over and over that's how i feel about it i went to a design event last night and it it usually yeah you're right it's the same people not that that's a bad thing i want to say that you know but you're running into the same people but one thing i thought was interesting is and this is not to to put this organization or this this business down but I noticed that they always bring in people from outside the city, like for speakers and and events and things like that. And I'm always wondering why they don't do more with people in the city. And for them, for at least the person whom I talked to, they said that the reason that we do that is because we want them to see that Atlanta is a great city for design, which, okay, that makes sense. But it seems like you're trying to attract more people here instead of nurture the community that you have, because Mm -hmm. the folk, I mean, just like you said, there are a lot of great, brilliant, talented folks here. We've got, I mean, ad agencies, we've got startups, we've got small studios, we've got product, like what you're doing. We got fortune 500 design. We've got, you know, the hobbyist freelancer working at home. We've got several design schools here. There's enough talent in the city that we could start recognizing that. So people can see that, Hey, there's talented people right here in our backyard, not just the big name that you flew in from New York or from L.A. or something, you know? Absolutely. I think you're right. And I think that there also should be a little bit more emphasis, too, on the black talent that we have in the city, because there is a lot. And in design, I mean, we're still really a minority. Like, you talk about UX. I mean, UX now is is mainstream. But when I first was kind of getting into it before that I was a web designer or a graphic designer. Mm -hmm. And then my skills were transferable because of my interest. Like I was really like at a certain point I was like, okay, cool. Anybody can make something cool, cool looking and like super animated because I was a flash designer too. But 
other than that, man, what, what about the usability? Like, how do you make something function as expected? Or then how do you make room for discoverability? And then how do you create environments where people are are actually going to champion your product, which helps like foster a relationship from that product to that person or that brand offering the product? And so that's how I got into this space, man. And I feel like there's a bunch of black designers or minority designers as a whole that probably share the same story, but they're just underrepresented because they're still a minority, It really, in this tech industry. Do you feel that UX is starting to be taken serious as a design discipline? It is, but certain, I mean, just like anything, if you're in a very big company, like it, you are going to either be fortunate or you're going to, it's, or it's going to be some time where people are still ramping up on the idea of UX. I personally think that UX is now becoming, it's being taken seriously, but the term UX is now being fluidly kind of represented because you, when you think about UX and the U in that, it's like user. And then that's so like cold and formal. As companies are evolving their processes and evolving their customer service or customer service driven perspectives, then the term user doesn't seem befitting. Mm -hmm. You start getting more so into just experience design overall, which is an over encompassing term that allows for customer experience, allows for industrial design, the like accessibility of, of actual hardware itself. It, it is equivalent as like when you talk about electronic music and then you have all of those branches under electronic music. Mm -hmm. Like, so I personally, I try to like get away from that term, but I know that other companies are doing similar things too. I've been curious about that because I know here on the show, I mean, I've been able to sort of see a trend in even just the people that I've been able to interview. There's been a lot more UX people over the past two years. Um, and it feels like more people are starting. Well, it feels like more designers are starting to go into UX as a discipline because it's, oh, I don't want to say this in a way that is is belittling, but. They're going into it. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me, let me, let me clarify this because I've had UX designers on the show before and some have said that they went into it because they weren't like technically proficient in terms of like being able to draw or being really good at, you know, Photoshop or Sketch or something like that. But they really understood the processes of ideation and discovery and those principles that go into UX. And so mm -hmm. I see a lot of folks kind of going into UX, and again, I don't mean this in a bad way, but they're going into UX as kind of like an intermediary skill of design. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does make sense, and I do see what you're saying, and I agree with that. I mean, there's a lot of companies like Iron Yard and um, in General Assembly who are offering these courses. The only problem I have with this is I feel like a lot of these things are based on emerging trends. Yeah. UX yeah. itself is like a very career thriving, like, you know, potentially career thriving industry. And, and the numbers that are aligned to it look great. The mm -hmm. problem is there's still a gap in skill sets. And, and even in the way that they're teaching things like the fully immersive programs, depending on where you're going and who's your instructor, 
I don't think that sometimes people are getting the actual like breakdown of what the UX roles actually do. Uh-huh. You know, like and the then that's version. Yeah, yeah. Like there's there's UX shouldn't be a bridge. There's lean UX. The thing is though, I feel like the people who are best suited for working in the experience design field are those who are balanced, like the T-shaped people, which are, they have a broad interest, but they also have a very narrowed down focused interest. Like, so when I talk to certain people that come from like General Assembly or whatever, there are a few that I, I hear that are like, yes, I'm really interested in becoming an information architect, or I'm really interested in becoming an interaction designer. But there are a lot who are more generalist. And I don't really think that is really helping them because the UX itself has, it's like a really good, like when UX is done properly, it's like a really good team, like a good sports team. Mm -hmm. You have the people who are good point guards, which may be your equivalent of an interaction designer. Then you have your good, like small forwards or centers, which may be a good researcher. Those people focus so much on their role and they have exposure to the other roles. But the thing is, though, they're not trying to do every single role, you know, and like and that just, oh, those are my little gripes about it. But I still think people should go deeper into the UX from their schools. But I think Georgia Tech right now is doing a really good job of that uh, based on the interns that we get here. They have a like a it's like a joint program of computer science and UX, which is crazy. I don't know the name what they're giving this course or this program, but the people that we've seen are really talented. I get what you're saying. Like, I even know that, you know, some organizations don't even look at UX as design because there's no kind of a a visual, tangible thing that you can see or hold. You know, but realizing that good design is something that is is something that one we've all been exposed to in one way or another, and that does not necessarily mean that it's been a general tangible thing. I mean, say for example, if you have to go to the DMV and get your license renewed, I mean, I think as we all know, like the user experience there is is trash for the most part. <laughs> you know, it's not something that we can touch or see or you know see but we feel it we know what it's like when you have to get that number and wait and the long lines and like it just doesn't make any sense you look at it and feel like this could be done so much better so much easier but for some reason i know that there are organizations that don't look at it as design they just see it as like psychology or sociology which Mm -hmm. um, i think is is not the best way to look at it as you've mentioned, like with these different schools that are teaching it, how have you kind of seen UX as a practice change over the years? Well, so when I first got into UX, like, and, and I saw companies trying to adopt it, they were like saying everything was UX. Oh, yeah, we have a UX team. It wasn't really UX, man. It was, there was no like real evaluation of how to make something better holistically. It was more like, how do you make it look better? You know? And so it was like very visual design oriented, or there was a few process tweaks, but that was just more than likely that's kind of factored in because again, you're, if you're at an agency or consultancy, that's what happens. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But over the years now, like at Honeywell, we have Honeywell user experience, it's, which is like, that's our overall group. Each Honeywell, like a member of the Honeywell user experience team is assigned to a small business group. So I'm assigned to aerospace. Somebody might be assigned to transportation services. And all of your insight is related to that specific niche group. And so like the, we come together like weekly and discuss like, Hey, what everybody has been working on because it's good to understand patterns and then also get feedback. But how we're doing it at Honeywell is like, we're separating it based on the working group. And I think that's kind of effective. The only problem right now that we're seeing is because Honeywell is still new to the software space is that the processes that would be required to have almost like a, like a unified design language system, which we have one, but they, it varies per small business group, you know? And like, ideally it would be a situation where you have like your one pattern, like Google material or Airbnb, they have their own like design language system, like where elements are designed in a group, they're voted upon, they're implemented, they're updated in a sense. And everything is consistent across every group, you know, mm-hmm. but that's just like growing pains, man. Now let's talk about ideation. You know, as, as we've mentioned, you know, kind of how UX has changed and grown. One thing that you mentioned is that you advocate for, um, and this is something we actually talked about before we recorded. So sorry for people that are listening, but you advocate for designing offline first, before you really start getting into software, like use pen and paper, use whiteboards, before you start jumping into Photoshop or Sketch or Illustrator or what have you, why is that important for the ideation process? I mean, because you can't really expect an architect to build a house without actually doing it first, you know, or you can't expect an industrial designer to actually like build that furniture or build that object without sketching it out and understanding proportions and then getting feedback. It's the same thing that should be applied with UX. The thing is that you're not really dealing with like physical objects. You're dealing with digital ones, but the simulation of that physical object is real. So it should be treated as such. The reason being is because when you jump immediately into sketch, you're already like kind of eliminating the idea of an active collaboration with like non-designers. So what I've noticed is that I get more feedback when I have paper and pencil out or when I'm on the whiteboard and everybody is doing everything in a rough fidelity. People feel more inclined to participate because when something is rough, you're equally the playing field is level. So one person is not more skilled than another. Like you're just making rough sketches and everybody has a chance to be heard. And that's, that's been really effective for me. This is something that I embrace very much. So I get buy-in early on for my developers. I get buy-in for my product owners this way. Like, Hey, I'm thinking about this. I'll have my ruler out, my micron pins or whatever. And I actually make a scaled down version of what I'm going to build in sketch, which basically eliminates the need for a real like digital wireframe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I would imagine like further down the line, hopefully that streamlines the entire process by getting those sort of, 
issues out of the way as early as you can. It, it helps oh, absolutely. kind of streamline the whole thing. It does, man. It really does. You save so much time. I mean, you, of course, you front load everything up uh, at one, like up front, because you're getting like everyone to just kind of like put their heads in it and think about things like what happens when you do this and then what happens? What's the feedback loops here? Okay, cool. What are the rules for this particular component? So then by the time you're done sketching out everything, you already have user stories. Yeah. You know, so it's like your product owner loves you because you have just pretty much got ahead of sprint because you're doing everything beforehand. That's true. Let's go back a little bit. I'm curious to kind of know, you know, who are some of your influences? Who are the people that have kind of motivated and inspired you to get to to where you are now? Man, there's a few. So of course there's Dieter Rahm, you know, he's a, a really big influencer. Like uh, he's a German designer and he was really involved in the like Braun brand, creating watches and clocks and all of these minimalist things. And, you know, to this day, like even Apple, like it got their iPod inspiration from one of the designs that Dieter Rahm has created. The other person is like Don Norman. You know, Don Norman was a engineer turned psychologist in a sense. And he realized that you can like only ask what for so long before you need to ask why. And why is actually the most important question you should ask because it goes deeper into things more than just the surface. It goes deeper into the reason behind the essence of a particular subject or the sensitivities of specific subjects and also help develop empathy. And then uh, other than that, man, from a just overall style perspective, outside of design, of course, you have to have like people like Miles Davis, also like people like Max Roach, any of those guys from the bebop era. Mm -hmm. That's where I get my like influences of style. And I infuse that into my my design work because bebop itself is pretty much it's based on improvisation. Like so you have your standard structure in music, but then when you improvise what you're doing is you're bending it in a way that gives even more meaning to the people who are experiencing it. So what fundamentally what that looks like is you're going and giving me the form of something or the function of something, how it works, how it's expected to work. But then you're helping me fall in love with it because it's it's personalized to me. It feels unique. There's more dynamics. There's a lot of things. So those sprinkles of different like augmented notes or whatever makes me more intrigued. And you got to have that balance between being completely functional and completely delightful. Now, I have to ask this now. Is this kind of partially coming from your kind of Detroit upbringing? <laughs> yeah yeah man <laughs> music is uh music is essential so if you've ever seen the movie baby driver i kind of relate to that the main character because my whole entire world revolves around music because there's a lot of parallels in every aspect see we don't think about this but there's like every creation process from 
doing design to producing music to actually cooking to whatever there are multi-sensory creations but they all have the same formula and so yeah me being from michigan being from like outside of detroit i grew up dancing i grew up having nothing but music all the time i grew up having more industrialized like environment and so there is a balance between like the level of coldness, the level of structure, the level of like depth I put in my work that is uh, definitely inspired from where I'm from. When did you sort of first know that that this kind of design was what you wanted to do? Always, man. Ever since I was in elementary school, I wanted to be a designer. I started off drawing tattoos on people's arms, selling them for like 50 cents, getting in trouble for doing so. But that was my entrepreneurial efforts for sure. Nice. And (laughs) I was really big into things like science, you know, so like my grandfather, he was a a painter. My mom's dad, man, he was also very like just intellectual as well. And then my dad's father was the dean of the school district and the dean of a technical school that I was. uh, So I had the best of both worlds. I was into computers early on and I was also into design. So like that fusion gave me a combination of being extremely analytical as well as being extremely creative. Nice. Is there any kind of particular advice that you've gotten that has really stuck with you over the years? Yes. Stop trying to be perfect. That is the theme for every designer of all time. Every designer can wear a shirt that says that. And the reason being is because As a designer or any creative, you're providing your own personal investment to something. So like when you have to like just um, deliver it, then you want it to be your best. But sometimes we're like we're treating it like we're doing a meta analysis where basically we're going outside of ourselves to judge ourselves and no one else is judging it at the same level. And so that's my biggest advice I've gotten. And that's something that I've learned to adopt, which is change and perfection happens in increments. And it also happens in a form of like just a reductionist effort, you know? Mm -hmm. Do you have a dream project or anything that you'd really love to work on? Yes. (laughs) I want to design things for the blind. We rely too much on visuals, in my opinion. We rely too much on design is too visual, in my opinion. It doesn't need to be that anymore. We need to incorporate more multi-sensory experiences where basically a blind person can experience design the same way a person who is deaf or a person that cannot, they, they can't feel because they may have some like sensory issue with their nervous system. We should be able to create multi-translatable like experiences. Think about responsive design for humans. Mm -hmm. That's what I would like to do. And the first thing is really just what is like cell phones look for, for blind people? What is anything that, what is a fully audio experience look like? And I know we're getting going to that direction with the no UI, which we're going more talking and search uh, base interfaces like Alexa and Google Home and things like that. Those things intrigue me a lot, man. So I'm going to give you a, and this is, I've never done this before on the show. You're going to be the first person I try this out on. Um, so way back in the day, this is, God, when did I do this? 2001. I remember it was 2000. No. Yeah. 2001. 
So I was doing internships and interviews and things, trying to figure out where I was going to intern at my junior year of college. And I was like, I ended up getting a interview with Microsoft and they came to school and everything. And the interview question, they just give you one question. And apparently this is something that has started to take on a bit of an urban legend in the tech industry. Like sometimes they say Google does this or other companies, they give you like this really abstract one question to like get an idea of your thought process to figure Mm -hmm. out if they want to bring you in for more interviews or something. And so my question, and this is the question I'm going to ask to you is I want you to design an alarm clock for a blind person. Okay. Excellent. All right. So that's very unique, man. Design an alarm clock for a blind person. What do you want me to do? Tell you the process or yeah, what? like what, what's what's the process that you would go through to <clears throat> to make that happen? And I, I have to, you know, take into account where current technology is now. Like when I was talking about this back then, I think I was mentioning stuff that I didn't even know existed at this point. But yeah, what's what would be your process? So the process would first off, I would try to understand like where the person will be using this because obviously like spatial relationships are different uh for people who are visually impaired so i would like to understand do they have any other connected devices that will allow them to like ping other devices so similar to like a sonar effect if they relay some type of like signal would that allow me to then identify where i'm going and also can this alarm clock be available on multiple devices like a wearable of some sort like in the headphones or in a form of a a physical hardware or whatever so those are those research initiatives i would do first and then understanding the constraints what i would do is if there's a case where they're coming up if we're coming up with an alarm clock and i'm trying to understand where it's going then I also need to know, like, this can't really have that many controls. I would try to think about basic commands that could be set via voice, leveraging technology like Alexa, Google Home, Google Assistant, which is really good right now. Mm -hmm. And then basically, I would try to understand and work with, like, the technical team to figure out a way to really make voice command and voice recognition even stronger. So this way, my responses are more accurate. And so if I say, hey, set my alarm to 6 a.m. on blah, blah, blah day, well, what it should do is almost like a blockchain approach is hit every device that I'm synchronized with and then relay that signal whenever I'm near that device. So even if I have my cell phone next to me, if I have like another alarm clock that may be Bluetooth enabled, or if I have some like headphones that are enabled that way, everything should be sending me a signal. And that's what I would do for from a no UI perspective, because you're not really designing anything visual, obviously. And um, like I would relay a lot or rely a lot on those things and then also leverage tactile design as well make sure that the buttons feel like buttons make sure that the cue points on the buttons are descriptive enough so in braille of some sort you know what's on what snooze or 
what can be like manually set and then what are the feedback mechanisms from there so that would be very interesting i would like to take on that challenge if anybody else is listening we can collaborate and do that nice that was dope man i'm, I'm glad you i'm glad you <laughs> glad you entertained me with that one no that was good i like the the blockchain part that was i think the most interesting part like being able to then ping other devices because one thing about alarms like like for example i have i mean i can set an alarm on my phone but then i also often like if i'm super tired i'll just set it on my google home which i have on my desk and yeah. the alarm between the google home and my phone do not sync up so oh, like man. when i tell it to wake me up at 6 30 the google home alarm will go off but not my phone or like if that i set the alarm on my phone it'll go off on my phone it won't go off on any other devices and it's all on the same network but I like that aspect of being able to like link your other devices together. So then it becomes this full sensory like awareness that, you know, oh, I got to get up, you know, or I've, I've set this alarm. Now I have to, you know, go and, and turn it off or something. So, no, that was good. Yeah, man. Man. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank good. you. I think the first person that might do that will be Google. I, I have a feeling because I have the Pixel 2 and the uh-huh. assistant on the phone is kind of ridiculous. And like yeah. that, the voice recognition on it's kind of crazy. And I, I think if I synchronize some other devices, I give it a year before like all of these things really start operating that way. Cause they already have their hands on blockchain anyway with their, yeah. their cloud platform. Everything syncs across all of your devices anyway. So I don't know yeah. why an alarm wouldn't want. Wouldn't yeah. Like that. all my reminders sync that way. Like if I set something on my phone, it's going to show up. It's not only going to show up on, you know, my calendar on the web, but like Alexa is tied into my cal- I have a, a, a what you, what do you call it? The Echo Dot mounted in the kitchen. Oh, nice. So it'll it'll, yeah. you know, it'll hit Alexa and it'll hit Google Home. Although Google I I think Google will get it together, but they have to really figure out the interoperability between their devices because as much as I love my Google Home, it's kind of stupid in terms of, <laughs> of being able to remember certain things like I can, like if I use Google assistant on my phone, I can set a reminder, but I can't set a reminder if I tell Google home to set a reminder. But if I, if I set the reminder on my phone and then I ask Google home about it, it will remember the reminder. It's really, they got to get that together. I think once they get it all working in the same ecosystem, it'll be really powerful, but they're not there yet. Not yet, but Not yet. but there's Jarvis, you know, and and Iron Man, which the future <laughs> will like be that, <laughs> you know that, yeah. like there is going to be a continuous experience. So uh, using a wearable or air ear pods or something like that, when you get into your car, your experience is going to be continued when you go to work, and then when you go for a jog, everything is going to pretty much like surround you, and I I know for a fact that's going to be that way. Yeah. What do you want to accomplish this year? What I would like to accomplish this year is to really do a bunch of speaking engagements. That's something that I've always wanted to do. And now I'm really taking that seriously. And so I will be a mentor for World IA Day coming up in February this month. Yeah, that's going to be fun. And then other than that, man, I, I just I want to give talks on. The topics I'm talking to you about, like, you know, collaboration, uh, sketching before you sketch, and also even just like trying to tie in my music background 
with that as well, like adding more sounds to interactions. And that's what I would like to do this year. I, I would love to do all that. Now, if we sort of look forward, uh, let's say the next five years or so, where do you see yourself? What do you want to do? Well, in five years, what I would like to accomplish is that I would hopefully be giving a TED Talk somewhere. That's a huge goal of mine. The other thing is launching a series of the uh, my businesses that are related to like home lifestyle stuff, not your typical lifestyle stuff, but more art related things. And as well as consulting with smaller businesses and startups and helping apply lean UX and really being looked at as the expert in that sphere. Because my real focus is on micro interactions. And uh, those that is super important to me and helping companies understand that and then apply that to have better experiences for their customers and things. That's going to be essential. So five years from now, that's where I see myself. Well, Anthony, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Awesome. So you can go to my site, which is right now, it's just a place to land, but it will take you to different places. It's anthonydaniel.co. And also I'm on Twitter at OMGAnthonyD and also on Dribble, which is the same thing, OMGAnthonyD. And then you can search for me on Medium. That's where I'll be writing things as well. I have a few articles on there too. But yeah, that's where I, I can be found. And yeah, thank you for having me, man. Yeah, I just want to say, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really like how how passionate and analytical you are when it comes to UX and, and these these principles and things. Thank you for entertaining me, of course. I'd say entertain, not like, a, you know, like dance kind of circus sort of way but i mean no but i I mean for for taking that example and and really thinking through it and talking through it because you know one thing that i feel is important for designers you know and i i say this all the time is that you know being able to really sort of analytically think your way through your work whether that's through writing or speaking or what have you those are the kinds of things that get you noticed those are the kind of things that get you opportunities because people can see how you think is not so much just the work that you can do. I see a lot of designers that will put up a bunch of portfolios and they'll show that, yes, they are a good competent set of hands that can do this work. But, you know, what's your thought process behind it? What, you know, whether it's a case study or some kind of example or explanation of how you think, how you do the work, because those are the kinds of things which, honestly, that's where you get your opportunities from. That's how people notice you. And certainly I think that's how you just do great work, being able to think about really actively what is it that you're working on and since you're an expert when it comes to this sort of thing i was really glad to kind of have you on the show and and talk your way through it so thank you again for coming on i appreciate it thanks man i appreciate it Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week big thanks to anthony daniel the second and thanks to you for listening you can find out more about Anthony and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. But what's it like actually working there? 
Of course, I know you hear the ads that we have before, you know, every episode. But think about it this way. Everything that Facebook designs is done at scale. I mean, with 2 billion people serving, that means design critiques, metrics, and other factors are a huge part of how they work. Does that sound interesting to you? If so, then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is the friendly community where you'll build the web app of your dreams. From games to art to music and hardware, Glitch is really flexible enough to create some really powerful tools. You can even use it for work or to learn how to code. The possibilities are endless. So what will you create today? Get started at glitch.com. Whether it's defining a branding style in VR or creating a voice user interface that actually feels human, Google Design is committed to sharing the best design thinking from Google and beyond. Sign up for great stories, events, and the latest updates on material design at design.google forward slash newsletter. Again, that's design.google forward slash newsletter. You can also follow Google Design on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well. MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. And it also helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for Design Podcast. And just like I did with Adrian's review earlier, I'll read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, if you're listening to this and you want to hear next week's episode early, then you should become our patron over at Patreon. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.